passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, isn't it great news that Jesus Christ is risen? That's great. It's awesome. And I'm really thankful that you can join us for this Resurrection Sunday. And if you're not here in person, thank you for joining us online for Resurrection Sunday. It is great to have you. And this is a special day, obviously, because we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate the fact that the grave is empty. And the big idea we're going to look at this morning as we study the scriptures is that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And that changes everything about our lives. Jesus' resurrection also sets apart the Christian faith, as you know, from all other faiths. If you go to look at other faiths, their founders, they're still dead. They're still in the graves. Where is Muhammad found? He's found at Medina. You can go see his grave because he's still there. But you could never find Jesus' grave because he's not there. You couldn't find him in the grave, I should say, because he rose from the dead. Now, on Resurrection Sunday, we don't just uh, celebrate the resurrection, but we like to study the resurrection. And typically, I like to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's Paul's chapter on the resurrection. He covers it from just about every angle in that chapter. And as I went back to it this week and began to look at it, I said, I've preached on this chapter so many times. How could I do something a little different and new for uh, this Resurrection Sunday? There's a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15 that almost nobody preaches on. Not just on Resurrection Sunday, but like ever, because they are so difficult to understand. Guess where we're going to go today? We're going to those verses. So take out your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be reading and then studying verses 29 through 34. And the focus of those verses is how the resurrection changes the way we live our lives every day of the year, not just today. So hopefully if you have your copy of God's Word out, um, and it's turned to 1 Corinthians 15. Stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along if you can in your copy as I read verses 29 through 34. And you'll see why these verses oftentimes are skipped. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That ends the reading of God's word, and you can be seated. 
Well, as you can tell, this is obviously a rather obscure passage with some uh, difficult text in it. And we're going to have a good time studying it this morning. But before we look at these verses, I think the best way to understand what these verses are about is actually to just back up a little bit, go back to the beginning of this chapter, and just sort of skim through the earlier verses, because verses only have meaning when they're in the context of others, right? So let's go see what the context is. And what I'd like to do is start in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to follow along. If you, By the way, if you're new, one thing we do here is we have outlines, and it'll be really helpful for you if you actually take them out and follow along with me. That'll show you the flow of our argument and the flow of what we're doing today. The first 11 verses, here's Paul's point. The evidence of the resurrection is irrefutable. It's irrefutable. The first thing he points out is this in the first two verses, is that Jesus changes lives. That's evidence for the resurrection. He says here, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, remember the gospel message, the gospel that I preached to you, that you believed, and the gospel message that changed your life. Remember the gospel message that made you born again, that gave you forgiveness of sin, that made you into a new person with a new heart and a new life? That's evidence of the resurrection. If Jesus was still in the grave, if Jesus was still dead, when you called out to him for forgiveness, would you find it? When you called out for him for a new life and a changed heart, would you experience it? Absolutely not if he was still in the grave. But because Jesus is alive, he's in the business of changing lives today. Look at yourselves in the mirror, how Jesus has changed your heart and changed your life. That is irrefutable evidence that Jesus is alive because you've been supernaturally reborn. The next thing Paul says is this. Another piece of irrefutable evidence is this. The Old Testament and Jesus, by the way, predicted the resurrection. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And Paul says (laughs) the next piece of irrefutable evidence is God's Word told us that Jesus Christ would die and that he would rise again. We see the resurrection in the Old Testament, for instance, in type. Type is like Jonah. Jonah was thrown overboard. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Three days, he was in the heart of the ocean, as good as dead, until God commanded the fish to vomit him up after three days. And he, figuratively speaking, came back to life. We don't just see the resurrection in the Old Testament by type but we also see it by direct prophecy. For instance, in Isaiah 53, we find all kinds of detailed, specific prophecies about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
We read in Isaiah 53 that he would be crucified between two thieves, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would die for our sins, or as Isaiah said it, by his wounds we would be healed. And that Jesus would ultimately conquer death because Isaiah says it this way, he will divide ultimately his, his victory among the strong, that Jesus will rise from the dead. It's in the Old Testament by type and by direct prophecies. And by the way, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we find it also in the New Testament, that Jesus, before he died numerous times, told his apostles that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And he gave specific details about what would happen and that he would be dead for three days and that he would come back from the dead, rise from the dead. In the Gospel of Mark, there were three specific passages that we saw that described, all prophetically spoken ahead of time. And Paul's argument is this is more irrefutable evidence that the resurrection of Jesus is true. Not just that Jesus changed our lives, that means he must be alive, but it was prophetically prophesied that he would do this. The third uh, piece of irrefutable evidence Paul gives is this. Hundreds of eyewitnesses confirmed Jesus' resurrection. And he says, and that, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list of everyone that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. This is a sample list of some of the people that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. Significant people like the apostle Peter, the rest of the apostles, and large groups of people one time to more than 500 people at a time. And there were many more besides that. And the reason Paul gives this list, he says, you think that the resurrection is a bunch of fantasy? You think it's fiction? Many of them are still alive. He says, go check them out. Talk to them. Interview them. You can get firsthand accounts. Now, by the way, you say, did anybody actually ever do this? I can tell you one, people I, one person I know that did. You ever read the book of Luke, or the Gospel of Luke, I should say, or, and the book of Acts, which is a two-work combo by Luke? Did you read the very beginning? He says this, he, that he went and did the research to find out what was actually true. He went and interviewed these people. And then he wrote down his gospel book from first-hand information. So the point is this, that the um, resurrection has tons of eyewitnesses. Peter, for instance, writes this, 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses, he says, of his majesty. Now, I want to point out to you the, the importance of this eyewitness evidence. I did some research this week, and I learned that in a criminal trial, 
uh, lawyers would love to have two eyewitnesses. If they have two eyewitnesses, they almost can guarantee a conviction of a crime. Sometimes they'll get a conviction of a crime with one eyewitness. But if you have three eyewitnesses, a lawyer's conviction rate rises to 99%. How many eyewitnesses do we have of a resurrected Jesus? Hundreds. 500 at one time, plus all the apostles, plus hundreds of others. That's pretty good facts. By the way, if you look at the scriptures, it's not just that Jesus appeared one time to the apostles. I counted, this is a quick count, at least four times he appeared to the apostles. Sometimes he ate with them. They touched him. They talked and had conversation with him. They saw him with their eyes. I mean, the first time, I'm sure the guys went to bed that night, they're pinching themselves. Am I having a dream? And like, the next time it's like, he's here again. This must really actually be happening. I'm touching him. Jesus is alive. Now, Paul moves on to one specific eyewitness he wants to underline, which is himself. He's an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. He says this as he continues. Last of all, as to one untimely born, untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul says, remember my background. I started out completely opposed to Jesus. I helped persecute Christians. I helped drag them off to jail. When it came to Stephen, I was there as they assisted in his murder. Then on the Damascus Road, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to me and completely changed my mind. I went from persecuting Christians to giving my life to tell people that Jesus is alive. In fact, I was willing to be whipped to proclaim Jesus is alive, beaten, flogged, stoned, all because I would proclaim Jesus is alive. Folks, People are not willing to be tortured for what they know is false. People will only be tortured for what they are absolutely certain is true. I ran across a, a, a book when I was doing my research for the message this week, and I didn't have a chance to double-check this, but I'll give you the information anyway because it really struck me and I highlighted it. The writer said that there are 39 uh, major sources of history that we use to look at history that happened at the time of Jesus. 22 of the 39 major sources of history we use reference, in some way, the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. 11 of those 22 are not Christian at all and have no association with the church. The empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, is a fact of history, not a fiction. So, how do we know 
that the resurrection is true, that it has irrefutable evidence that it actually happened. Number one, look at the change in your life, in your heart when you trusted in Jesus. Where did that come from? Number two, look at the testimony of the scriptures, which predicted exactly what would happen hundreds of years before. And number three, look at the eyewitnesses. There are hundreds of them. Now, what Paul does is he goes into the next major section where he flips and he says, you know, even though there's all this irrefutable evidence that Jesus is alive, some people still will insist that the resurrection didn't happen. That it's all just wishful thinking. And that's not just true in the people of Corinth that he was writing to, but isn't that true today? A lot of people think, well, it really didn't happen. And what Paul does is he gives us um, the logical consequences of the resurrection being false in verses 12 through 19. Here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And there's seven logical consequences. We're going to go through them very quickly to keep moving. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our bodies will not rise from the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, he says that not even Christ has been raised. What that means is if Jesus didn't rise, we're not going to rise. When you and I die, we are simply going to turn to mulch. We will go out of existence. That means we would have come from absolutely nothing, and we will return to absolutely nothing. There's no purpose. There's no direction. There's no morality. We're no different than an animal. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we won't rise from the dead. And life will result in nothing. Number two, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our preaching, he says, is useless. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, he says, in is in vain. If Jesus is still in the grave and he didn't rise, there is no good news to share, my friends. There is no hope for life after death. There is no such thing as forgiveness of our sin. There is nothing to celebrate in the church. In fact, we should never be gathering in the church. If Jesus didn't rise, there is absolutely nothing to preach about, and there is no forgiveness for our sins. All hope for life after death is gone if Jesus did not rise. It gets worse. Paul says if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then not just that the church is useless, but our entire faith is in vain. He says it in verse 14 and your faith is in vain. He says it in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Jesus is dead, the entire Christian faith is dead. Coming to church on Wednesdays and on Sundays is a complete waste of your time. Every time you call out to God in prayer, either in your heart or with your words, you're speaking to emptiness. You'd be speaking to nothingness if Jesus did not rise when you're calling out to, to get Jesus for mercy and for grace. 
that when you read your Bibles, it would be a complete waste of time. You're reading a book that would be based on a complete lie if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Everything in this book that talks about Jesus and his resurrection is completely false. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you can, that's the whole linchpin of the Christian faith itself. Everything is worthless. And Paul says if Jesus did not rise from the dead, not only that, but the apostles then were liars. And we've been found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. The apostles obviously claimed they had met the risen Jesus. And if Jesus did not rise, every single one of them would be a liar. They would be misrepresenting God. The apostles would not be known as courageous and exemplary people. We'd have to reclassify them as the worst of people. They'd have to be considered liars and deceivers. But here's what I find interesting. You know, every single one of the apostles, minus one, died a brutal death because they swore up and down that the resurrected Jesus is alive, they met him, they touched him, and they talked with him. For instance, James, the brother of Jesus, died by stoning because he swore the resurrection was true. Peter, Andrew, Philip, Simon, and Bartholomew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, all died a death by crucifixion because they refused to recant, saying that the resurrection of Jesus was true. Matthew, James, the son of Zebedee, both died by the sword, swearing the resurrection was true. Thaddeus died by arrows, swearing the resurrection was true. Thomas died by a spear blessed, swearing the resurrection was true. The only one who didn't die a brutal death was John the Apostle. He died of old age, but you need to understand this. They tried to kill him. They tried to boil him alive in oil. When they failed to take his life, they let him die of old age. And he would not recant the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Only fools are willing to be tortured to death for something they know isn't true. The apostles weren't fools. They were telling the truth because they met the risen Jesus. Now, how about this? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Paul says that we are still in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The ramifications of Jesus' resurrection are twofold. Not only does it mean that he has conquered sin and death and that we are forgiven of our sin when we trust in Jesus and we'll be with Jesus in the future, but it also means that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead conquers the power of sin in our lives today. That when we become a Christian, we no longer have to sin because it doesn't reign and rule in our life anymore. But if Jesus did not rise, our sins are not paid for. We still will face the eternal consequences of them. If Jesus did not rise, the power of sin is not broken in your life. 
He says this, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're all lost. Then those who have all fallen asleep in Christ have perished, is what Paul says. That everyone who has died trusting in Jesus for hope, for forgiveness, was all useless. They've perished. They trusted in something that would never save them. It reminds me of like a drowning victim. And somebody pushes a lifeboat over to them and they have this wonderful hope that they can just get in the lifeboat, they'll be saved. And they get in the lifeboat to be saved only to discover there's a hole in the bottom of the lifeboat and it's sinking. That's what it would be like to trust in Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead. Lastly, he says this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christians are the most pitiable of all people. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, he says, we are of all people to be the most pitied. Spending our lives worshiping Jesus as if he was alive. If when he was actually still dead and in the grave. We'd be following a faith that's based on a lie. Giving our money and worship to Jesus in a church that would be totally pointless. Christians would be the most tragic of fools if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So the logic he's been following is this. Number one, Jesus, the, it's, there's irrefutable evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Number two, if Jesus didn't rise, there's devastating consequences. Everything is touched for the Christian faith. In fact, the Christian faith is destroyed without the resurrection. And then he flips to the other side in verses 20 through 28. What are the logical consequences of the resurrection not being false, but being true? And he says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, in the interest of time, uh, I'm not going to go through the verses here. I'm just going to give you the points here. Uh, the, but I'd like you to notice in the points is what he focuses on in this section of verses is primarily future-orientated, not current life-orientated. Since Jesus rose from the dead, look at this. Jesus guarantees our resurrection when he returns. Since he rose from the dead, Jesus will destroy every rule, power, and authority that is demonic power opposed to God. Jesus will establish his authority over everything and everyone. Jesus will ultimately destroy death, and all things will come under the reign and the rule of Christ. The only thing not under Jesus will be God the Father himself. So the facts of the resurrection are irrefutable. If the resurrection was false, it would be completely devastating to the Christian faith. But because the resurrection is true, we look forward to an incredibly bright tomorrow where Jesus Christ destroys death itself and he reigns over everything, he rules over everything, and he destroys Satan, sin, and death. Now, here is where we go back to our key passage where Paul gets very practical. And now his focus is, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change the way we live today? Not just what about, what does it hold for the future, 
But what does it mean for us here and now? How does the resurrection change the way I live? And there's three answers. It's this. The resurrection motivates us for salvation. It motivates us to serve Jesus. And it motivates us to live a holy life for Jesus. Look at the first one. The resurrection motivates people to be saved by Jesus so they can experience a reunion with their loved ones. It comes from this very difficult verse. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? All right. This is obviously the very difficult verse. We all know the Mormons have developed the whole theology about baptizing dead people out of this one. And uh, what does it mean when he says people are being baptized on behalf of the dead? For the last 2,000 years, there's been somewhere between 40 and 400 different interpretations of this verse. And uh, I don't want to get caught in the weeds on this one. But I think, in spite of this verse being difficult, if we take what we can understand from this verse, and we follow the flow of the argument that Paul has been making, there is some great application to this verse. Remember the subject. Paul is writing about the resurrection. He's writing at this point in the way the resurrection gives us hope and the way the resurrection changes our everyday lives. What does he mean when he says people are being baptized on behalf of the dead? I'm going to take this one word at a time and then explain this to you as best I can understand. First, let's just talk about baptism. Baptism is something that happens in the Christian church when somebody believes in Jesus Christ. You trusted in Jesus Christ, and they were baptized in Jesus Christ. That's generally the way it always works. Just so you know that in the New Testament times, when people trusted in Jesus, they didn't put their hands up in the audience. They didn't have an altar call, and they came forward. When people trusted in Jesus, the way they talked about publicly the change that Jesus made on the inside of their life privately is they were baptized. You hear this constant refrain in the New Testament. They believed and they were baptized. Now why were people baptized as a way of publicly acknowledging their faith in Jesus? Baptized, by the way, simply means to dip or it means to immerse something underwater and then take it out of water. You go to Romans chapter 6, and what does Paul say? Paul says that it is a picture. Baptism pictures when we are buried with Christ, we go under the water, and then we are raised with Christ, we come out of the water. We're raised to new life in Jesus. So what we have happening is when Paul is talking about baptism here, he's talking about an outward display of salvation that has happened on the inside of someone's life. 
So I would simply start with this. When you read the term baptism, simply think salvation. Because people are believed, believed in Christ, and they were what? Baptized. That's the way they publicly proclaim their newfound faith. The next tough word here is the word behalf. Like, people have been baptized on behalf of the dead. And I looked that up. It's the Greek word hooper, which is a preposition. It's not that big of a deal. It actually has a variety of ways it's translated. And I'm not a major Greek scholar. I'm a minor Greek scholar. I took it in seminary and I studied it. But I can tell you that some other people point out that because this word has such a broad way of translating, you could say on behalf of the dead, or you can say because of the dead. And as soon as you realize you can say because of the dead, then all of a sudden things begin to make sense. People have been saved because of the dead. Now what would that mean? The idea is there is a resurrection. There is an afterlife. And people are being saved because they want to be with somebody in the resurrection. They want to be with somebody in the afterlife. Let me give you an example. Say you have a husband and wife. Wonderful relationship. They deeply love each other. But the wife is a Christian, and the husband's not a Christian. And the wife tragically dies. And the husband has heard the gospel message, but he hasn't connected with the gospel message. And the pastor explains to the husband that you know that your wife is right now with Jesus. And that one day she will be resurrected just like Jesus. And you know, you can actually still be with her. You can spend eternity with her because of Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus, you will not just be saved by Jesus, you will be with Jesus and you will be with her. And the husband says, well, I'm trusted in Christ and I'm being baptized because of the dead, because I want to be with her. Now, folks, as I thought about that, that's exactly what I do just about every time I have a privilege of doing a funeral message of somebody that has died. I always say, you know, this person, your, your father, your, your mother, whose body is in the casket right now, they would want you to know a couple things. One is that the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. That while you are grieving today, they are celebrating today because they are with Jesus, which is better by far. And the next thing I always say is, you know what they would want more than anything else? They would want you to be there with them. Not just celebrating in the joy of Jesus, but being with them for the wonderful family reunion in eternity. That is what you look forward to. And I always tell people at those funerals, trust in Jesus Christ, not just to be saved by Jesus, but to experience a reunion with your loved one. Now, folks, let me just apply this. I know here on Easter Sunday that we, when people come, they always bring relatives. 
And if you're like most house, houses, you have a divided house. I don't mean that some of you are rooting for Iowa and the others are rooting for Iowa State. Not that kind of divided house. I mean that some of you have trusted in Jesus Christ and others haven't. And the reason you're here this morning is because you had to come along with family. And I want to say to you, you know, the evidence for the resurrection is irrefutable. It's solid. If the resurrection isn't true, the entire Christian faith falls apart. Paul made that point. But because the resurrection is true, trust in Jesus. Be saved by Jesus, not just for your own sake, but for the reunion you can have with your family that you so dearly love. Because one other thing is certain, is that we will all die. And we will uh, die and either spend eternity apart from Jesus and apart from our relatives who have trusted in him, or we will dry and we will be in the presence of Jesus with our relatives who have trusted in him. So, I encourage you, I, I beg you to trust in Jesus. Next motivation. The resurrection motivates me to give my life in service to Jesus, knowing I will be rewarded by Jesus. Paul says this, why are we in danger every hour? In other words, if there is no such thing as a resurrection, why in the world would I be putting my life on the line all the time? Why would I be willing to live in danger? You know the adversity that Paul faced? Beaten with rods, whipped, in prison, often hungry, he says, shipwrecked, multiple assassination attempts on his life. Why would I put my life in such incredible danger if there was no resurrection? And when there is a resurrection, here's his point. I won't just be resurrected to be with Jesus, but I will be rewarded at that time for how I have served Jesus. That's what motivates him to risk his life. That's what motivates him to be willing to be tortured to tell people about Jesus. Because the more costly it is to serve Jesus, the more richly rewarded he will be by Jesus in the resurrection. In fact, Paul describes it this way. When he thinks about the reward of Christ for the difficulties he went through to serve Jesus, he, thinks, he says this, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not only to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen in eternity. For the things that are seen are transient, here today, gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul says, I am committed to reaching people with Jesus, no matter what it may cost me, because I know I'll be richly rewarded by Jesus for doing it. The greater the suffering, the greater the reward. He said, if there is no resurrection, there's no motive to serve Jesus. There's no motive to sacrifice for Jesus if the resurrection isn't true. And then Paul says this, but I protest, brothers, 
by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. Folks, he says, man, life is hard every day for me. If there was no resurrection, why would I go through that? If there was no reward to look forward to, why would I endure all these things? And he says this, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? Now this is one of those tough verses again. Did Paul literally fight with wild beasts at Ephesus? We don't have any historical record that he did. Maybe he is speaking metaphorically. Acts chapter 19, we know that there was a great crowd at Ephesus that really wanted Paul dead. And maybe that was of the wild beasts he fought. It was metaphorically speaking. Or it could be literally speaking that he was thrown in the arena and he had to defend his lives against wild animals that wanted to eat him alive. Either way, literally or metaphorically, the point is the same. Paul said, why would I go through all that and risk my very life if the resurrection wasn't true? Why would I go through all that if I don't look forward to being rewarded by Jesus when I stand in front of Jesus for how I have lived for him and how I have served him? In fact, Paul puts it this way as he continues. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, folks, the only thing we should do is pursue pleasure in this world. If there is no resurrection, make sure you have as much fun as you can in this life because you turn to mulch for the next life. But as we saw there is a resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence is irrefutable. You will rise from the dead. Every single one of us will rise from the dead. And as Christians, we have been completely forgiven by Jesus. And when we rise from the dead, we will be rewarded by Jesus based on how we lived for him. So, it's okay to maybe suffer to follow Christ. It's okay to have to risk your life to follow Christ because you'll be rewarded for it. Have an eternal perspective. The last point he makes is this. The resurrection motivates me also to live a holy life knowing I will be rewarded by Jesus. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't hang out with people, he says, who don't believe in a resurrection. You know why? Because if the people you hang out with don't believe in a resurrection, what they're going to live like is all that matters in this life is having as much pleasure as you can right now. And you'll start to pick up that habit and that lifestyle. When it doesn't matter to live as if you can get as much pleasure in this life now, what matters is to live so you can be richly rewarded in, by Jesus Christ in the next life then. See, what's happened in our society, one of the big problems is our society, is our society forgets there will be a resurrection of the dead. 
we live in a society that doesn't have any sense of eternal accountability. We live in a society that people believe all you can do, get as much pleasure, get as much fun out of, you can, you can out of life here and out of life now, and then you turn to nothing. And that's just not true. And since there's no sense of eternal accountability, life falls apart. Think about it this way. We've had this whole thing over the summer about defund the police, defund the police. Take away uh, police officers that will arrest people. Take away judges who will put people for doing evil things in jail. What happens to the crime around, around cities where the police are taken away? Skyrockets. Because there's no sense of e- ultimate accountability. And the same thing happens for people who don't believe in a resurrection. I might as well just enjoy life now. Get as much fun out of life now. Morality doesn't matter. Accountability doesn't matter because you don't believe in a resurrection. Now, folks, let me tell you this. It's not just Christians who will rise from the dead. The Bible is clear that all people will ultimately rise from the dead. All people will stand in front of Jesus. Those who do not know Jesus and have not trusted him as their Savior, they will rise from the dead and they will be judged by Jesus and sent to a just and fair eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Those who have trusted in Jesus and have have him as their Savior, we will also be judged by Jesus, but judged for rewards because our sin is completely and totally forgiven. Paul says it this way as he finishes. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Stop living as if there is no such thing as a resurrection. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Stop following people who seem to have no knowledge of God. Jesus rose from the dead. Folks, that guarantees that we are eternal beings, that we will rise from the dead as well. And we look forward as Christians to being richly rewarded by Jesus when we do. And that motivates us to serve Christ. That motivates us to live a moral and godly life for Christ because he will reward us in that day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that the evidence of the resurrection is irrefutable. I thank you that the ultimate goal of the resurrection is that Jesus, you will conquer everything that is a fallen power opposed to your heavenly Father, even death itself. And I thank you that we too, as Christians, will participate in that victory. And I pray especially for those who are here this morning, who have come in these doors, who walked in and saw the resurrection as a piece of fiction, not as a truth and fact. I pray that they would leave today trusting in Jesus, as their Savior, so he would be the one who will reward them in eternity and not their judge. 
And I pray that they would look forward to what is the ultimate in family reunion in eternity. When they will be with their deceased relatives who have gone before and who are right now around the throne of Jesus celebrating for eternity. We thank you that the resurrection changes the way we live every day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
few quick announcements. Uh, first of all, if you're a visitor, you can fill out the registration card. If you leave it in the pew, that would be really helpful for us to get to know you a little better. And also, there's a spot on that card for your prayer requests. If there's anything we can be praying for you about, please put that on the back of the card. Leave it in the pews. The ushers will pick it up after the service, and the pastors and elders will be praying for you. And if you're somebody online or you prefer to do it touchless, simply go to crosswinds.tv slash SL Sunday and your bulletin and your registration cards are all available electronically through your phone. Also want to remind you that on Wednesday the ordinary men are gathering at nine o'clock in the morning down there in the commons and so you make sure you're there. If you're one of the more of the retirement age guys you can actually come at nine o'clock in the morning and we have a night of missions coming up Sunday April 18th it's 6.30 in the evening, so put that on your calendars and look forward to being there. I'm going to go ahead and pray and send you out. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the evidence for your son's resurrection is irrefutable, as Paul has so clearly said in 1 Corinthians 15. And I thank you that the future that we look forward to with the resurrection is so incredibly bright not just that you have forgiven our sin and conquered death, but that you will conquer every fallen power that is opposed to your heavenly Father because of the victory of the resurrection. We thank you that we look forward to that. But I also especially thank you that the resurrection changes the way we live right now every single day. That the resurrection is a motivation for salvation that we would come to be saved by you and be with our relatives who have trusted in you for a great family reunion. The resurrection is also a motivation to serve you with our lives and to live in a moral way for you with our lives, knowing that how we live for you in this life will be richly rewarded by you in the next life. So may the resurrection motivate us to live sacrificially and joyfully for you with our eyes fixed on eternity, the day we are resurrected and with you forever. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.